Hi there, and welcome to the Press Gallery, Edmonton Journal's politics podcast, the Under New Management Edition. It is September 18th, 2014, and my name is Sarah O'Donnell. I'm an editorial writer with the Journal, and with me to talk about how Premier Jim Prentice is stirring things up at the Alberta Legislature are three people who I would put in my cabinet every time. Provincial Affairs columnist Graham Thompson. Hello. Politics reporter Miriam Ibrahim. Hello. And columnist Paula Simons. Hello, Sarah. Although I have to admit, Paula, I think you would cause me a lot of trouble. I'm not going <laughs> to lie. I think I, I, I would like to be chief whip. I, I think, think you would, would. I think I'd be an excellent I, chief whip. I feel whip. like you would be responsible for a lot of headlines, so that's okay. <laughs> well, Peter Eric James, Prentice, who knew, is now officially Alberta's premier. He wasted no time putting his stamp on the provincial government after he was sworn in on Monday. So what should we talk about first? The new, or at least newish, cabinet? The non-cabinet appointments revealed Wednesday? Or the decision to sell off the provincial fleet of planes? Where do you guys want to start? Anyone? Anyone? Chronologically, then. That means we started the cabinet swearing in. He had promised to shake things up during his campaign for the PC leadership. And it's been three days now since he introduced this new cabinet. How big a broom did he bring? Well, it was limited in how big because he's using a lot of the recycled wood. He has the old caucus. And he's, what he's done, though, he has brought in two people, outsiders who are not elected, Stephen Mandel, a former mayor, and Gordon Dirks, a former uh, trustee with the uh, Calgary School Board. And cabinet minister in a whole other province. And Saskatchewan, that's yeah. right. So <clears throat> I think he was trying to show, look, things have to change I'm bringing in some new faces. There will be by-elections for these two guys, of course, this fall, plus one for Prentice. He was limited in, in just what he could actually do with cabinet because he's still using the old people who were Redford's um, caucus. So he's, he's slimmed down cabinet down to um, 20 people. Prentice has also taken on uh, a couple of portfolios himself, Aboriginal relations and intergovernmental relations as well. And that's sort of him saying, look, um, a big issue for me is relationships with First Nations and other provinces and the U.S., and that's all to do with uh, getting more oil to market. Yeah, is he stretching himself too thin, do you think, by taking on those two portfolios? Mary and I looked this up. It's been decades and decades and decades since a premier held more than one portfolio in addition to his own. It's not uncommon now, though, for other premiers to hold, um, you know, similar type portfolios. Mm. Uh, I think Brad Wall actually holds holds the same portfolio as well. And it makes sense, right? Because it's the premier that's often doing a lot of that traveling and making a lot of those relationships and building those relationships. Um, and that, that ministry definitely got the previous government in trouble. So yeah. maybe the, it's smart the I, that he... I, the IIR component, That's right. right. And so uh, it's probably smart that he brings it in right under his purview. I mean, Cal Dallas, the former minister of that um, department, is no longer in cabinet. Right. Yes. And he has little helper buddies to help him because David Dorward, uh, the Edmonton uh, MLA, is the associate minister of Aboriginal Affairs. Uh, his mandate letter has nothing on his to-do list, so I'm guessing it's to mop up after... After any spills, yeah, it describes helping helping him out with projects as needed. I think yes, yes. and uh, then although we're jumping ahead here, uh, he's appointed Jay Hill to be his special advisor on relations to British Columbia, Saskatchewan, and the Northwest Territories. So um, he's you know he's given himself some helpers, and Teresa Wu Paw, who's going to be his special advisor on Asia Pacific relations. So 
Uh, it is a lot for a premier to take on, especially a premier who's about to fight a by-election. But uh, obviously he wants to demonstrate that he's in charge on those files. What surprised you on Monday? And now that you've had time to think about them, do they do they actually still feel like surprises? Or does it seem more logical now that he's, he's made those choices? I think that a lot of people were expecting Stephen Mandel to make it into cabinet. I don't know that very many people were expecting a second person to be uh, unelected in cabinet and, and for it to be somebody like Gordon Dirks, you know, a, a Saskatchewan MLA, a former Saskatchewan MLA and a, a Calgary school board trustee. I don't think that like that totally came out of left field for yeah. me. I admit I had no idea who he was. Like I was not at the ceremony poking you guys saying, who the heck is that? But I was in the newsroom actually yelling, who is that guy? In the <laughs> so. Yeah, to me, it was surprising um, giving these two unelected people basically half the budget, uh, health and education. I was surprised that you're right. We expected Stephen Mandel. We've been hearing now for days for the for last week that um, Prentice would be appointing unelected people to cabinet. We actually asked him this question last week a couple of times. He said, you know, basically stay tuned. All the options are open. Um, yeah, Gordon Dirks, I don't know Gordon Dirks, but the fact that he's put these two people into really senior portfolios, um, the opposition is saying this is just proof that there's not enough bench strength in the caucus. And I think that Prentice would agree with them. He is saying basically, yeah, I'm trying to change this and I want half these people gone. He raised the idea of term limits during the leadership race about uh, MLA should not sit more than three terms. Uh, he's, he's attacked for that because it's unconstitutional and uh, simplistic. Uh, but that is also a signal to the, to the public that, look, I think half these guys should be gone too. So I agree with people out there who say should be a different uh, face on government. And this is one way of doing it. I was surprised. I, I mean, we all expected Mandel would be in cabinet. I didn't know that he would be handed health, which is a huge portfolio. But in, in light of your question, does it make sense now? I suppose it does. I mean, Mandel was always very passionately interested in capital health's management and the health file as mayor, and he certainly was extremely critical when the Stelmat government blew up the capital health authority. Uh, he was a big backer of Sheila Weatherall, who was the, you know, the controversial director there. So it's, you know, it's plain from what he said thus far that he wants to take a very activist role there in trying to devolve powers back to the regions. Whether somebody who's coming from completely outside the provincial government and outside the health field and wants to remake the management of Alberta Health Services again is such a good idea, I don't know. I was also surprised, frankly, that there weren't more new appointments from the caucus to the cabinet, because I'm trying to think. Uh, Maureen Kubinek, who's I think uh, was quite a respected uh, regional mayor, is going in as culture minister. I think that's probably not a bad appointment. And Dorwood, as I mentioned, is going in as an associate minister. But that's really it. Right. They brought Stephen Kahn back. For mm -hmm. he, uh, yeah, he had yeah, been a cabinet been a minister. But, but, that's, but that's it for new cabinet ministers. And I think there were people on the back benches who might have been expecting that this was going to be their shot and didn't get it. I was also a little surprised that, you know, some people like Doug Griffith ended up completely outside. And I'm still trying to, you know, imagine what it was that Doug Griffith did that got him sent on the naughty chair. You know, Prentice has set himself up a challenge because now he's got people like Lukasik, like Griffiths, like Fred Horn, like Doug Horner, all on the back benches. These are heavy power hitters. And in any political ecosystem, you take your political rivals and enemies and you deep six them like that. You have to worry about caucus loyalty and you have to worry about whisper campaigns that are already starting, frankly, from people who are disaffected. 
how were the people who were out of cabinet? How did they react? Did you did you see did you see them that day, or did you have you seen them in the week since? I think they're bi- I think they're biting their tongue if they're upset, and some of them are upset. They're biting their tongue, but don't forget, these people all supported Prentice, basically the majority of them. Lukasik, of course, did not support Prentice. Uh, and, the, and let's uh, just say they're not so many bite marks on his tongue as all that. Um, yeah, not, uh, that's true. But um, I think that they've, they've been sidelined. Um, these people have been, um, they were supporting uh, Prentice. One surprise, I guess, would be um, interesting was um, Rick McIver got yes! back into cabinet. Not only that, they gave him Lukasik's old portfolio, Minister of Jobs. I asked people upstairs, you know, in the Premier's office, off the record about this, what, and was this a signal? And he said, no, no. I said, come on. You know, in politics, this kind of thing does not happen by accident. Not only is Lukasik out, you give the one other person in the leadership race his old portfolio. How does a guy who who calls his new boss unethical just days before his election end up with a cabinet post and, when these other good soldiers are, are sitting there and on a the guy, And a guy who took part in an anti-gay hate rally. Well, um, that's a really interesting question. I think obviously, uh, as with the Gordon Dirks appointment, this is an effort to throw a bone to the disaffected right-wing people who left the party to join the Wild Rose or, or to just, uh, you know, absent themselves from politics altogether. I think it's a dangerous strategy. I mean, it, it was our colleague Karen Cleese who pointed out when we had our editorial board with Prentice, he has to fight a two-front war. He has to fight the New Democrats in Edmonton and present a progressive face here, which he does by appointing someone like Stephen Mandel to a power position. But he also has to fight the Wild Rose in Calgary and Southern Alberta, which he does by appointing Gordon Dirks, who's a Bible college president and the pastor of a very prominent evangelical church in Calgary, to the education portfolio, and which he does by putting Rick McIver into a senior cabinet position. Now, whether that will work or not remains to be seen, because McIver and Dirks in some ways, are a huge bonus gift for the Wild Rose in its efforts to make itself look like a moderate centrist party. Hmm. How did the Premier respond to some of the criticisms of of the appointments, but particularly there were concerns raised about the new education minister? What, what was he saying about that, Miriam? What what did he do and how did how did he handle that? Well, basically, I mean, first, he's, he's, he's told people that, look, they're going to be running in a by-election and they're going to be presenting themselves to, to voters and voters are going to get the chance to to cast judgment by deciding whether or not to vote for him. But beyond that, you know, especially with Dirks, he has had, uh, I think it was three terms as a trustee. And I think he also served as the chair of a Calgary board. And so he does have a history there of some sort of prominence in in Mm. Calgary and especially on the education file. And so he... And balancing competing interests. Right. And so so from Prentice's perspective, his argument was that he's been, he's worked, uh, you know, on on a school board and therefore is is totally it's totally appropriate to put him into that file um you know and as for the unelected thing as i said you know there's going to be a by-election within within a a matter of weeks here so whether or not that's enough to placate the critics is another question right Uh, what does he need from this new group of cabinet ministers or or newish newly formed composed group of cabinet ministers in terms of performance who needs to give him a big win quickly Uh, well he needs competence um and we'll see Mandel in health is going to be interesting. That's a portfolio that's full of uh, landmines and how he's going to handle that because they've got 18 months till the next election. They need something to, to show they're actually uh, making progress in areas like health care, improving things. Uh, on education, you know, there's been uh, an issue about uh, the report that came out this, this year on uh, excellence in teaching. And uh, I think that we've seen... Um, comments from uh, Prentice about getting back to the basics in education as opposed to 
doing any um, well, the, the, experimentation. Yeah, the mandate letter for the education minister very specifically used the words reading, writing, and arithmetic, which is kind of an old-fashioned combo That's phrase. Right. And, and a sort of a snarky comment about come up with a grading system that parents can understand, yes. which I thought was code for goodbye, Jeff Johnson. Yeah. Actually, that was a surprise yeah. to me that Jeff Johnson is still in cabinet as, mm. as, as senior's portfolio. But I think when you talk about people who need a big to give him a big win i think actually manmeet bular as infrastructure minister needs to deliver a win um Bullard's mandate letter is very clear that he's supposed to get schools built and seniors facilities built. Mm. And those are obviously, I mean, education and seniors are two files that Prentice obviously thinks really matter. And that's why Jeff Johnson, in fact, stays in cabinet as seniors minister with a portfolio that isn't just about handholding seniors and, and seniors benefits, but about improving living conditions in extended care facilities. Clearly, Prentice figures that that's an area he's got to shore up. But a big win would be balancing the budget. Of course, it looks like they're going to do that, even though it's not in the mandate letter, I don't think, for um, um, Robin, Robin Campbell, Campbell, who's a new finance minister. But they got to show, um, it seems that they'll, they'll do that no problem. Based on last year, based on this year's projections, there'll be another uh, surplus uh, budget next year. So that's really important as well, if he's saying balance the budget and show surpluses that he can actually spend on things like uh, schools. That's going to be important as well. Uh, speaking of quick wins, We've talked so much in the year of our podcast about government planes. I don't think we could, we, we should just skip over the fact that he did make a big announcement on uh, Tuesday about the government aircrafts. He announced that they're grounding the fleet. There will be no more. So why was he so quick to the draw on this one? Well, uh, I think it was a few weeks ago on this podcast, I said that he'd have to do something um, significant with those planes. Um, and, and he didn't. I mean, it... It was a big, strong sort of step that he took that people that people can say, look, this is one major way that he's different from from the rest. He's going to get rid of the planes. Um, you know, it'll take three or four months. We don't know how they're going to sell them yet and, and, and what that process is going to look like. They're going to open up an RFP for charter services. That's going to raise a whole host of questions once that process becomes more uh, clear to, to uh, the public. But it, it's definitely... A populist move, um, and and one that I think he needed to he needed to do it. There was just so much baggage baggage heh, there <laughs> with the planes. Um, and sorry, they couldn't, weren't being couldn't resist. A bag. <laughs> if, look, but if getting rid of these planes was such a no brainer for him, and obviously it was because it was the first thing it sounds like he did. Or why why didn't he say unequivocally during the campaign? Yeah, they're gone once I'm leader. He kind of said, I don't really like it, but I have to study it and look at it. Well, he wanted something to come out on his first news conference and say, I'm doing something different. And this was it. I think he knew about this months ago. He was saying, I was thinking about it. He talked to the Auditor General last week and he's thinking, hmm, okay, fine. I've got the, I can think about this now. Let's just sell it off. This is something he wanted to do at his first news conference. That was Tuesday as premier in the media room for the first time. And it's a, a big splash and it's front page. And I think that's why he waited to announce it now. And if we are going back to talk about our predictions, I want to say, Miriam, that I predicted win on the first ballot. Just going. Just going oh, that's that. right. Oh, fi <laughs> finally, Graham Thompson can claim a correct. <laughs> finally, 22 years, I got the prediction right on the first ballot that the leader would actually win on the first ballot. I got it wrong every other time in the would, last would 22 like, years. Would you like to offer a prediction on the Scottish independence referendum? I'm thinking they're going to vote no. I hope, I'm, I'm hoping <laughs> no. I'm wearing my Scottish tie today, my Thompson tartan tie. I've, I have family in Scotland. I'm from Scotland. I'm just going to go way off topic here and say I'm hoping for a <laughs> See, no. See, this is why she doesn't want me in cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, you, I, I bit you put the bait you in the did, water and, and I now, bit. Okay, so I'm going to reel you both in here. 
I want to know about the trio of appointments he made on Wednesday. You re- briefly referred to Jay Hill being appointed to this newly created position. Mm-hmm. C- can you tell me a little bit about these three posts that he announced and, and how he's going to fill them and, and what the reaction was to that? Well, what he's doing, he's replacing the Redford appointees to Hong Kong. That was Gary Marr, of course, very controversial appointment. It was a position created for Gary Marr. He made uh, it cost the taxpayers $560,000 last year, another controversy. So he's getting rid of Marr in a sense that Marr's contract will expire next year. Now, we knew that, but at the news conference yesterday, Prentice made a point of saying, we will not be renewing that at all. So it's very clear Gary Marr is gone. And, uh, of course, in... Uh, and who's taking that place? Ron Hoffman, who is basically a career diplomat. Um, and so he's going to go and represent Alberta there. Um, interestingly, you know, Prentice essentially triggered a federal by-election with one of his appointments, um, uh, Rob... Rob Merrifield, uh, the former now MP for Yellowhead, who resigned just Wednesday, um, hours before that announcement. And so he's going to be Alberta's representative in Washington, and he's replacing replacing David Manning there, who we were told essentially has resigned his position and is, is going to be just staying on sort of in the transition. So the Wild Rose and other opposition parties were very quick to criticize Prentice for these appointments, saying it's just another example of I don't know if they use the word cronyism, but that's kind of what it sounded like to me they were saying. Is that fair, do you think? Well, when it comes to the issue of um, um, to Jay Hill, it it does have a whiff of um, cronyism. because just, just, just a little whiff, whiff. You know, because, you know something, uh, Jay Hill happened to be the co-chair of the Prentice campaign, a co-chair of the Prentice campaign. Really? So what a... Wow. And and you had Prentice throughout the whole campaign saying, I will not be appointing my friends to these important positions. Um, and then, lo and behold, this week, he's appointing Jay Hill, of all people, to a really important position. It's, well, it's a weird position in a sense. This is a new position. It's Alberta's agent to represent Alberta and to BC, Saskatchewan, and the north. And you're thinking, well, that's sort of the the government's job you know they do have ministers do that kind of and thing. not just the north uh, the representative to the the, the new west partnership, partnership which is oh. a, a premier's club it just it it, it doesn't it, make sense no, to me there's an excellent column in the edmonton journal today by graham thompson <laughs> who points out that this is the kind of job you usually have an elected politician do you know and the, the trouble is that these appointments on top of the appointments of dirks and mandel i mean Mr. Prentice is not elected. Mr. Mandel, the, the, you know, the second most powerful cabinet minister, is not elected. The education minister is not elected. And now these positions are being filled by executive fiat without any kind of open competition. And the Rob Merrifield appointment, I mean, again, that's, that's an old Prentice um, you know, cabinet colleague from uh, the Harper government. You know, I'm not saying that Merrifield doesn't have qualifications to do these jobs, but I thought it was interesting. Prentice said, I believe that, well, you know, they wouldn't have taken these jobs if they weren't my friends. And I thought, Mm -hmm. what? You know, (laughs) really, you couldn't find anybody who could have been, you know, Alberta's agent in Washington. So once again, you forced me to play devil's advocate. But is there not, if you're the premier, do you not want people who you like trust and know and, and, and know that you can work with and can trust to do the tasks you ask them to do don't you want those people in those jobs like if you're the premier isn't that the best and smartest thing to do well i think for your chief of staff sure for grace and favor appointments that are in your personal purview that's fine but for public service appointments and you know it's an interesting question what are these jobs are these grace and favor jobs or are these public service appointments it struck me as very presidential 
you you know that's what the U.S. president does. He has these cabinet posts that are you know by his appointment basically with the you know rubber stamp of of Congress. So it just kind of struck me that and way. The, the problem is also the context for getting these appointments in. That's after Redford was criticized, basically forced out of government for rewarding her friends. And the Gary Marr is an example where um, even though he was competing against her for the leadership in 2011. She gave him this special high-paid job in Hong Kong as kind of a reward to one of the inside Tories, and people and, are and, upset and about and this. And to get and a now, rival out of, out of her hair oh yeah, and in yeah. a safe... I mean, it was a strategic political move. But still, it was a, a, an appointment. There was no competition for that job. She said, here's a job. Off, off you go. And this is what happened yesterday with Jay Hill under Prentice. So it's, it's a similar... Um, problem for the Tories. They keep telling us there's something new here. They'll do things differently. Entitlements are gone. And then all of a sudden, they go back to their old um, default setting, which is to give their friends uh, important jobs. Is it too soon to ask how you feel about Jim Prentice's premier yet? <laughs> no, I was doing a streeter yesterday. I'm working on a streeter with people in the street, and they're saying, give us more time to figure what's going on here. Um, yeah, we'll see how things play out. I think if uh, these by-elections go well for Mandela and Dirks, that will uh, quieten a lot of the controversy about them. If those by-elections don't go badly, mm. that's going to be interesting. Yes. And, of course, what we don't know, and this gets us, to, I guess, to topic number four is we still don't know when those by-elections are going to be held. I, I, have, I hesitate because last week you and I had to rush in here and record <laughs> a, a special emergency breaking news update to the podcast. So by the time this airs, maybe people will know what the by-elections are going to be called. We may. But, but at, as of this moment, uh, you know, Thursday morning, we still don't know when and we don't know where because we don't know where Mr. Prentice is going to run. Will Neil Brown in Nose Hill step down for him? Will it be Ken Hughes who steps down for him? Will there be anybody else, you know, who's been shunted to the back benches who's going to decide that they're going to leave too? So it is interesting because, you know, for Mandel and for Dirks in particular, it's very unusual that you're being appointed to cabinet and then you run. So for each of them, it's going to be a bit of a referendum, not just on the party, but on their appointments to those to those ministries. Okay, let's wrap it up there. And our next job as cabinet is to discuss our good stuff from the gallery that we would recommend to all Albertans for mandatory reading. Perhaps we would put it on the curriculum or it could be viewing or listening to. Uh, so who wants to start with their recommendation? Should I start? You start, Sarah. Okay, because I have had basically not a lot of time to read anything that wasn't related to Alberta politics. I was planning children's birthday parties. I apologize. But I took after the cabinet uh, announcement a quiz made in-house by our very own Lucas Timmons. And it's basically, how well do you know your cabinet ministers? I rocked it. I got to say, I'm like lieutenant governor status. <laughs> but I recommend all our, I bet, you know what, I have a feeling that press gallery listeners as a whole will probably also do very well on the quiz, but I'm going to recommend it. I'll post a link. It's edmontonjournal.com. And how well do you know your cabinet ministers? I'll, like I said, throw up that link. Graham, how about you? Uh, quickly, um, The Atlantic magazine has a new edition out, a special edition out on World War One. Of course, this is the anniversary, the 100-year anniversary of the uh, start of the war. Really interesting. I read it this weekend. And what they, as opposed to modern essays about what happened, this is essays from the time. The Atlantic's been around for a long time, so they've actually got essays that were written back in 1914 to 1918 about the war through the eyes of a lot of journalists. And it's interesting to see how, how they were covering the war as well. And you can see reflections on, like, they didn't know how it's going to turn out, right? So it's interesting, as opposed to getting a, a person looking back at the war, you actually have people writing about the war as it was happening. 
it's, a, it's the Atlantic magazine, a special edition on World War One. Really interesting. Okay, that sounds really good. I can't wait to read those. I bet there's some of them are heartbreaking. Ooh. Miriam, you want to go next? Sure. Mine is from the October uh, 2014 edition of The Walrus, and it's a brief essay on, it's called Cyber Insecurity, What We Don't Know About Canada's Digital Spy Agency by Matthew Braga. Um, and it's uh, basically, it's a, it's a short piece about the communication security establishment. It's basically Canada's equivalent to the NSA um, and just talks about um, all of the issues um, in terms of what, what we don't know about what they gather and, and, and what they do with it and why we can't know and, and how, you, how you get around that and how you get around all of those issues in order to, to actually hold and establish an organization like that to account. Is this going to terrify me? Like about what they know about me? Possibly, maybe. No, I mean, it's a very, it's not very in-depth. It's a short, it's a short piece, but uh, really interesting. It opens with a report that was written in 2008 about the fact that we don't know how much data they're collecting and what they're doing with it. And this is, you know, well before the Snowden revelation. So That's true. I'm already terrified. Okay, Paula, let's, let's conclude with you because I know you've got a good one. Oh, I love, I love this piece. It's uh, from the October 22nd edition of The New Yorker by their writer, Jill Lepore. It's called The Last Amazon and it's not about the river, it's about Wonder Woman. And it's about the very political feminist roots of Wonder Woman, who was created by a Harvard PhD, who's the same guy who invented the lie detector test, which is why she has that lasso of truth. And it talks about the fact that he was the son-in-law of the feminist and birth control activist, Margaret Sanger. And um, it, it is an extraordinary essay about Wonder Woman's radical feminist um, bisexual roots uh, and it talks about how during World War II she was this icon of liberation and women going into the workforce and that after World War II he was fired uh, her creator from 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 doing anything more and she became this you know homemaker Wonder Woman and and lost all of this political edge that she'd started out with it's an absolutely fascinating essay about Wonder Woman and what she's meant as an icon for women uh, over the last uh, 75 years. And I highly recommend it. It's an extraordinarily entertaining read and a really provocative political one. Sounds good. And if I was Premier, I would definitely want a lasso of truth to, to use on you three. I think that would be very important. And an invisible or, or, plane. <laughs> or vice versa. <laughs> and yeah. an invisible plane, yes! <laughs> Who wouldn't want an invisible plane? <gasps> that would solve so many problems. What fleet? There's no fleet. That's it for this week. Thanks to Graham, Paul, and Miriam for squeezing this into your schedules. I, I know you guys have been hopping this week. You can find a video clip from our discussions at edmontonjournal.com, courtesy of journal photographer and videographer Ed Kaiser. Previous episodes of the show are also archived on the website at edmontonjournal.com opinion. You've got other choices for where you can listen, the journal SoundCloud feed, or on iTunes, where reviews and ratings are always appreciated. We may not be new, but I would love to be noteworthy again. And unlike you two, I do not have the power to, or pull with Apple to push the podcast automatically onto everyone's iPhones, but I do have the power of you, Press Gallery listeners. We'd also love to connect on Facebook, facebook.com slash Press Gallery. Thanks for tuning in. We will be back next week.